If you want access to bonus episodes, reading lists for every series of Empire, a chat community, discounts for all the books mentioned in the week's podcast, ad-free listening, and a weekly newsletter, sign up to Empire Club at www.empirepoduk.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. And welcome to Empire with me, Anita Arnon. And me, William Derimple. I'd like to just say straight up that I've had some of the most <laughs> wonderful weeks of reading, preparing for this, reading Simon Seabag Montefiore's fantastic books, the Romanovs and Catherine Potemkin. It's always one of the great pleasures of doing this pod that you get to read the wonderful books on the subject you're doing. But I've been on holiday in Scotland in the last two weeks and sitting in sort of forests that I've been imagining not dissimilar to the uh, to the birch forests of the steppe and uh, pretty chilly too up here at the moment. Oh, no, I can absolutely back this up because you've been sending me regular, regular <laughs> quotes saying, oh, you know, writes this really well oh god this bit's brilliant look turn to page this one i've been i've been knocked out it's one of those it's one of those yeah. I, I, as i said at the beginning of our first episode with seabag i was at uh, college with him and, mm. uh, and and you can never really you know prophet is never uh, uh, regarded in his own home but reading this for that i have had such uh, an education in russian history and i would recommend to anyone thank you for blowing who, our special guest introduction no that was good <laughs> isn't it? You, i mean it's unlike you to it's very unlike me as you know i like to keep I like to keep my secrets close. <laughs> Hello, Seabag. Thank you. Thank you. Can I just say that the fanboy is off the leash? <laughs> no, no, that's so nice. Just... <laughs> well, it's, so, it's, it's great to be here with you both. So thanks for having me. Well, we, we're delighted. You did such a, a barnstormer on Peter the Great. Total barnstormer. Yeah. So, so we, we, we wanted to do the stepping stone from great to great. It's, uh, it's wonderful to have you. Uh, we, we talked about your enormous work world, but Catherine and Potemkin is very much the foundation of what we're going to be talking about. And talking about a woman who is, well, in your opinion, what is she? Well, I mean, I think she's probably the greatest, the most successful sort of female statesman, um, certainly of her time, but maybe of all history. That said, of course, 
we should point point out here that your most recent book is indeed a history of the world, and that you are in a position therefore to make this generalization more than most of us. Yes, and of course, and all these Russian characters are in that book, of course, as well. I mean, one should point out also that Catherine the Great and Potemkin, her sort of political partner, who we'll talk about later on, you know, were Russian imperialists, mm. and Russian imperialists uh, are not in fashion at the moment, quite rightly so, and partly because Putin has you know, has used them and Peter the Great as his inspiration. But that said, I think that that they were more humane, more cultured, more enlightened characters than virtually any other ruler of, of the Russian Empire. And one of the things that I find really quite astonishing uh, when we talk about history is the way in which great female characters are often traduced in later life and re- traduced and reduced. So, you know, we, we had this when we talked about India, and we talked about um, uh, uh, Rani Jindan of Punjab. He was referred to as the Messalina of Punjab. It was always sexuality that was dragged to the forefront to disparage anything that she might have done of any value that, you know, she was a whore. And Catherine, I mean, we have to say, the big thing that people will say when you say Catherine the Great, they immediately go, oh, you in, you're the one who is in love with her horse. And that, I, I can see you bridle. Oh, so that was a terrible pun, but I, I didn't mean it. It was a complete <laughs> Freudian slip there. But, you know, you don't like it when people say it because, I mean, let's just say what the myth is. The myth is that she had some contraption where she could make love with her stallion, right? Is it bullshit? It's a, it's a horrible lie. And I especially hate it because it's demeaning. It was a rumour spread in the British press at the time. It's a contemporary It's a contemporary lie, is it? It's a contemporary story that, that appeared in the Penny Dreadfuls, as it were, mm. um, in late 18th century Britain, when there was a huge crisis with Russia called the Olchakov crisis, you know, about Russia expanding actually into Ukraine. So that's where it comes, that these, these rumours come from. And she was demeaned by many people. I mean... Um, I don't know if I can say this, but Frederick the Great... Am I allowed to say what Frederick the Great described, how Russia worked? No, no, let's say what you like here. Frederick the Great of Prussia, well, he was the greatest statesman of the middle of the century, a contemporary of Catherine the Great, you know, despised women and was terrified of women sexually, emotionally. He was, he was a complete misogynist. But, you know, he said, you know, Catherine the Great, this is what happens when cock and rule Russia. Mm. But on the sort of whole story, I hate it. I find it so demeaning. I sort of twitch when I hear it. And really, it's because it is impossible to imagine for many, many men, even now, where we are, that sort of that there could be a woman who is both a serious statesman, a political genius, who also was a sexual libertine and enjoyed sex. And this is one of the reasons I hate, for example, the series, The Great, that's now because it's still just sniggering about the fact that this woman had a sex life. Yeah, I agree. Despite everyone saying, "Oh, it's terribly clever. It's such a sort of it's a sort of pastiche. It's a satire." No, it isn't. It's still just sniggering in twenty twenty three or whatever we are about a woman having a sex life. So I hate it, and I and I wanted to be to be treated seriously with her with her flaws. I mean, she was uh, on one side a passionate woman, and on another side a cold and ruthless power broker and seeker after power and empire. We should say that you don't blush at talking about her sex life. You deal in full with her sex life, but regard it very much as part of her personality and part of her part of who she was and her life. And also it was it was she was of her time. I mean it was the 18, this is the late 18th century. This is the time of Casanova and great characters like Voltaire and the Prince de Ligne. And so this was a time of 
libertinism. This is the heyday of libertinism when libertinism was completely acceptable. Mm. And um, she just lived like a man. She just she took the same liberties and libertinism as a man and she enjoyed sex and wrote about it passionately. And later we're going to read some of her love letters. I, I can't wait for that. And I'm really, really glad you're doing this because, you know, Peter the Great, we, who we covered in, in the first two episodes of, of this series, the stuff about his torturing of his son or, you know, sort of the torture that he took part, that stuff doesn't stick somehow through history. It's not the first thing that comes to mind when you say Peter the exactly. Great. But it does to Catherine. So listen, all power to you, sister. I'm very, I'm very much for this this retelling. <laughs> the second very important thing, Sibag, that you raised just as we were coming on here is the fact that you know she is a Russian imperialist. There was a fascinating article last weekend in the Financial Times by Timothy Gartanash talking about how the Ukrainians were reacting to Pushkin's imperial poetry and imperial writing. The fact that he is like Kipling a poet and a writer of empire, and someone who is a jingoist in many ways. And the Ukrainians, understandably, in the face of an existential threat, have effectively cancelled Pushkin. But we always believe in the show, because we're dealing with imperialism every day here, that two difficult things can be true at the same time, that Catherine can be an mm. outright Russian imperialist who is conquering large chunks of other people's countries, and she can be a great ruler uh, who is a remarkable figure. I think that's right. I mean, I think one could say Pushkin is still a great, you know, a great poet, but he's also a Russian nationalist who believed in the imperial rule of Poland. That rule of Poland was achieved by Catherine the Great. She swallowed Poland in 1796, and Poland did not reappear again until 1918. Well, look, there's a lot. As you can tell, this is going to be a very rich tapestry. Um, just very briefly, when we left you, uh, Peter the Great had died of a bladder infection, possibly and well, probably brought on by his venereal disease at the age of 52. Between the greats, between Peter the Great and Catherine the Great, you have quite a few women rulers. I mean, he leaves it to Martha stroke Catherine, the, the wife that he takes who has no blue blood in her veins at all. And then there follows something which, I don't know, do people call it the petticoat age? Because there are they so do. many, so many women who are involved. Yes, it's interesting that, you know, the most show, one of the most chauvinistic countries on, in the world had a century almost of female rule. And so, you know, Peter the Great dies in 1725. He's succeeded by this extraordinary wife who has the most meteoric rise in the, of modern times, Catherine the First. Um, there's a short rule by a grandson, Peter, Peter the Second, who dies very, who dies at 14. And then there's the Empress Anna, who's one of the most grotesque rulers of all time. She's a sort of Game of Thrones villainess, who really is a grotesque figure, who had dwarf throwing, made her courtiers sit on sit on um, on chickens' eggs, clucking in, in, in chicken clothes. Any particular reason for that? Who, just to, <laughs> just for entertainment, I mean, her, her dwarf, Pedrillo, the Portuguese dwarf, when someone said, is your wife an ugly dwarf like you? Um, he invited them to his house and he was in bed with a lactating goat. Oh, God. Dressed in, dressed in a baby's clothes. She was, she, you know, she was accompanied by... Uh, her three favourites were the legless mama, Darisha the handless, and Garbuchka the hunchback. Right. So she was an thoroughly grotesque figure. She ruled for 10 years. Mm. And then we move on to another fascinating character, Anna Leopoldovna, who was in a threesome with her female lover and her male lover, and she was overthrown. And so we come in 1741, 25th of November, by another extraordinary and capable woman, with an even more libertine love life than Catherine the Great, the very beautiful Venus of the North, Elizaveta, the mm. daughter of Peter the Great, 
and Catherine the First. And she seizes power with about 50 guardsmen in a sleigh, riding, wearing a, a breastplate and holding a spear. Brilliant. This is sort of, this is beyond Game of Thrones to yes. Narnia now. And she's like, and you can see in pictures of her, if you look her up, she is literally this kind of blonde, blue-eyed mm. Amazonian woman of incredible beauty. And of course, she was the daughter of Peter the Great, so she was specially loved. And she restored a lot of Russian power, but she was also a spenderholic, a uh, sort of Imelda Marcos with a sort of with six thousand dresses, and she was ruthless with anyone that crossed her. And as she lost her look, she became incredibly vicious to other women at court. And she was, you know, extremely promiscuous and had many, many lovers at the same time. All of them, by the way, rather admirable people. Oh, okay. So she had she had rather good taste. And her favourite lover was Alexei Razumovsky, who was a Cossack peasant boy in her choir who she raised to count and the most one of the most powerful families in Russia. So I love I love this. We go back to Catherine, Catherine the Great. I mean and there is something you have to bear with us because a lot of people are called Ivan and Catherine and Peter at this time. It's yes. just one of those things. Uh, I suppose it was like being called Brian at one era in Britain, but you know where lots of people have that name, but now Catherine. Let's talk about Catherine born in 1729. Where was she born and what was her circumstance? She's born in Stettin. She's of a very very minor royal family. Stettin which you say is now in Poland. Stettin, which is now in Poland. And I th- and, and she was the daughter of the, the prince of Anhalt-Zerbst, which was a tiny, tiny little principality in the Holy Roman Empire. And not a drop of Russian blood. Not, not drop. a drop of Russian blood. She was completely German. Her mother was a Holstein. Her father was an Anhalt of the Anhalt family. And her father was a general in Frederick the Great's army. Sounds like two different kinds of lager. Yes. Father was a Cronenberg and her mother was a Stella. Exactly, exactly. And she was, she was, she was born in 1729. And at the age of 50, 14 or 15, she's married to the heir to the Russian throne. Now, when Elizabeth comes to the throne, she has no children, many, many lovers, but no children. So she calls to Russia her nephew, who is Peter, Duke of Holstein, Karl Peter Ulrich, of Holstein. He is Peter the Great's grandson. Right. He's completely brought up in Germany. He comes to Russia and she wants to avoid all the instability of the early years. So she comes. So this is the same sort of time as, I mean, not quite the same, a little bit before, but the, the, all these Germans arriving and taking over the British monarchy too. It's exactly the same time. They arrive in 1714, the Hanoverians. And at the same time, this young Holstein duke is brought over to rule, to rule Russia as heir. But Elizaveta is a very formidable autocratic's she does everything herself. She dominates everything. She decides everything. And when she brings him over, she has to marry him. He's a, he's a child when she brings him. So in 1744, you know, just around the same time as, you know, Bonnie Prince Charlie in, in the 45 in, in Britain, George, the time of George II. I'm, I'm recording this 10 miles from Culloden Moor, I should say. There we are. So this is exactly the same time as Culloden. Um, she brings over as a favour, as a gesture towards Prussia, towards Ru- to improve Russian relations with Prussia, she brings over a Prussian candidate. And the Prussian candidate is a 14-year-old, 15-year-old girl, um, Sophie of Anhaltserbs. And this is, we'll now call her Catherine the Great for simplicity. Okay, so she was born Sophie, but she is, she is our Catherine, yeah. So Russia has two heirs. And she doesn't speak Russian. She's not Orthodox. Neither of them speak Russian. She's not Orthodox. She converts to Orthodox. She takes the name Catherine. And then she, she takes the name Catherine 
after, named after Lizaveta's mother, of course, right. who, who, who who died at 43. The great love of Peter the Great, who we had the last episode. Yeah, Great love of Peter the Great. So Peter, the heir to the throne, the future Peter III, hates Russia. And though he learns some Russian, he's never perfect in his Russian. And basically, he worships Frederick the Great, the great German-Prussian king. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not his only problem. I mean, he's it's also, a big problem. He, he's, he's, he's not a looker. He's got, like, smallpox. He's had smallpox, so he's, he's not pretty to look at. He drinks too much, which is a thing in the Russian Empire. And um, she thinks, and as well as his infidelities that she's going to have to put up with, that he's, a, he's an animal torturer, which, as we mentioned, I think, in an earlier episode, nowadays we regard as one of the early signs of psychopathy. But yeah. she thoroughly detests him, and he doesn't like her very much either. On one occasion, you write, Seabag, that he catches a rat, which he sentences to death by a military tribunal, then hangs in her bedroom. Which Yeah, but it is worth saying, he's definitely a grotesque figure. Um, he's definitely charmless, and he's lacking in all empathy. He's obsessed with soldiers, German soldiers, mm. Russian soldiers, and he is, what, one of my favourite words, a paradomaniac. <laughs> and um, he's always he's always um, worshipping German soldiers. Now, one of the things that... that See, but maybe you should just say, for those that don't know, what Frederick the Great of Prussia did to military tactics in Europe at this well, time. Well, Frederick the Great was an extraordinary character. He had his, his own story is fascinating, and it's all in the world, by the way. He was a military genius, a political genius, a great statesman. Revolutionised military tactics for a generation, introduced muskets, horse artillery, the drilling of soldiers, in, in, in all that stuff begins with him. Yeah, he created, I mean, he was one of the people, the Duke of Marlborough and Prince Eugen, and then Frederick the Great followed on from that and created modern... 18th century military tactics. Late 18th century. And they made possible Napoleon. Right. And indeed, the, the conquest of, of India and so on. This is all done by drilled sepoy units copying Frederick the Great. Correct. So he, Peter, uh, Catherine's husband, is no Frederick. And he doesn't have the, you know, the, the acuity or the military th- thought process. But what he likes is the accoutrements. And I thought this was really interesting that, you know, he so despises everything Russian, as you say, that he makes, you know, his Russian soldiers change out of their comfortable, comfy, baggy Russian uniforms and wear very, very tight breeches and shiny (laughs) buttons to make them look more like Frederick's army. And oil their hair and everything. So he was very, he was already unpopular. And he, he also was the opposite of his new young wife, Catherine, who was who literally defines empathy. You know, mm. she's brilliant with people. She later said that, you know, as soon as she arrived in the Russian court, first of all, she learned Russian perfectly to write it and read it. Um, secondly, she made herself the Russian candidate, as it were, out of the couple. She realized that the court was run by old ladies, like all courts. So she made best friends with them. And she said she learned the name of every one of their poodles and pug dogs. It's very clever. Parrots and fools. Parrots and fools. But she Mm. also, of course, was very attractive. She was not beautiful. She was curvaceous. She had gorgeous auburn hair. She had very blue eyes. Um, She had a high forehead. She was small, but she had sex appeal and she had charm. And that was very, that became enormously important. And she was brilliant. She read the Enlightenment writers. She read everything. Corresponded with Voltaire. She read her Voltaire. She read Diderot. She read everything. So Mm. she was kind of really an extraordinary person. But at the Russian court, uh, it was an extremely dangerous place. Elisabetta was absolutely, she wasn't Peter the Great's daughter for nothing. She had one of her best friend's tongue ripped out for plotting against her. 
She cut the hair off somebody else who defied her dress costume rules. Um, she loved having met trans, transvestite balls where the men had to dress as women and the women had to dress as men, which meant that she could show off her legs. Because well, she had good legs, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Which were rather good. She had good legs. So she could wear so she could wear sort of jodhpurs with boots and stride around with throwing her hair around. Did she have Peter's height? And she had Peter's height. She and was she's, a sort of she's gorgeous quite, giantess. Quite the, quite the mother-in-law factor quite in here. Quite, so, so here's Catherine. She's married. She's got quite a ferocious mother-in-law um, who has, you know, given her blessing. She's married to a man who, as you say, is challenged in many, many ways and also disliked by the court. Uh, how soon does she start seeking solace and Orloff in particular? When does he become a thing? Well, it may well be that Peter and Catherine had a moment when they were lovers and they actually did have a happy period. It's possible. But if that was the case, it didn't last long. Because remember, she wrote the history of this and she could lie when she needed to. But um, he certainly took a lover, a mistress, quite soon. And then she did too. And the first was Sergei Soltikov. She and Peter were under immense pressure to provide an heir, which was the whole point of their marriage. And none was, none was apparent. So it soon became clear that they had barely had sex, or if they had for a very short time. So it's possible that Elisabetta knew that somebody else was going to have to make her pregnant. And so she encouraged a good-looking aristocrat called Sergei Soltikov to have sex with her, to have an affair with They made it possible. Mm. She got pregnant, and she had the heir in 1754, Paul, who Catherine later implied was not Peter's son. But actually... Which would mean that the, the, the Romanovs later on are actually not Romanovs at all. Yeah, it, they could have been Soltikovs. However... It sometimes happens, even in the 18th century, that people are the children of their own parents. <laughs> it's been known. Right. And Paul was extremely like Peter III. And mm. as we may see if we go on long enough in these, this podcast, his experience in power was very similar to his father. Mm. And he also had this strange lack of empathy. So she has a son. The marriage is broken. They hate each other. And Anita, what happens next? Shall we well, discuss? I just I want to know about Grigory Orlov because that to me is like a real sort of Romeo and Juliet kind of like a true love affair. And played by your friend Sasha Davin, who yes, I, I met know. with he you is, he is my friend, in, the, in the great. <laughs> how, how very how very glamorous of you, Anita. Oh, and I'm, I'm so honestly, I can't tell you how very glamorous. I'm, I've just unloaded Nicardo order. That's how glamorous I am. Just before this, we expect we expect nothing less of you, but to know film stars playing. Grigory Orlov. Tell me about, just focus, Grigory Orlov, who he? He was not her first lover. Okay. He was probably her third lover, maybe. She'd had, a lo- she'd had an affair with Stanislav Poniatowski, the Polish secretary of the British ambassador. And this is important later. And they had an affair. And, and they're plotting almost Catherine to the gallows. Right. Because Frederick the Great invaded Saxony. That led to the Seven Years' War, in which William Dalrymple has has written about much about what happened in India during the Seven Years' War and Clive of India and all that, the East India Company. But this war, Russia entered the war against Frederick the Great. Elizabetta hated the fact that Frederick the Great had called her a whore, as well as other things I've mentioned already. And so the Russians were fighting against the Prussians. Catherine the Great became embroiled in, in intrigues that Elizabetta found very suspicious and virtually led to all of their arrest and downfall. But they survived. One of the officers in the Seven Years' War in the Russian army was Grigory Orlov. He now became Catherine's secret lover. And it was very useful to have 
Grigory Orlov, because he was one of the Guards regiments founded by Peter the Great, the Guards regiments that were the Praetorian Guard of St. Petersburg and the Romanov dynasty. So she now had the muscle to that would be very it was invaluable in Russian politics. And he was he was impressive too. I mean, physically impressive as she was. He was he was a big man. He was he you was know a striding man. He was he was a giant. He was yeah. one of these Russian giants. I don't know why they bred these men at this time, but they did. See, yeah. but so how quickly does this bad failed marriage turn to open warfare between the couple? I mean, we don't fully know. Because Catherine sort of rewrote, rewrote it so much late, and she so hated her son Paul that she that she actually wrote down that he wasn't he wasn't the son of Peter the Third, even though he may have been, even though he probably <laughs> Which was. She, she wanted to hurt her own son. That's, she wanted to hurt her own yeah. son. I think often in royal families they don't get on with their own families and they create their own. But that's another story. But the point was it was it was now open warfare, and Elizabeth, the Empress, was actually on Catherine's side. Again, she said. My nephew is a true monster, she said. So she hated him too. We should say again for anyone that's watching The Great and, and, and is taking that to be real history, that Elisaveta is the character who is the stuffed mummy in The Great and, and is never alive for Catherine the Great. This is, again, complete nonsense. Exactly, exactly. So, so by 1761, seven years go, war was going on, Elisaveta is dying, and the Russians are winning some amazing victories against Prussia. Which is no small achievement at this point. No this small achievement. History. There are battles like Gross-Jagersdorf, Zorndorf, Kernersdorf, where young Grigory Orlov, the guardsman, wins his spurs and comes back a war hero. Because we often have this view of Russia as having these enormous peasant armies that they yeah. throw into battle and, 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 and treat as, as mincemeat. But these are, these are strategically won battle against the greatest military strategists in Europe. Yes, but they were won with Russian cannon fodder, and they exactly follow what you described as a Russian army today and then. So the, the relationship is not good. Uh, Elisaveta, the mother-in-law, is on Catherine's side. Peter must feel all of this and be deeply suspicious. And then something happens where Peter, all his suspicions about Catherine are sort of vindicated. What happens? Well, first of all, Elisaveta dies in 17, at the end of 1761, and Peter succeeds to the throne. In six months, he manages to offend every single section of the Russian elite, the guards, <laughs> because he immediately makes peace with his hero, Frederick the Great, um, therefore throwing away all the Russian gains. I mean, the Russians had actually taken Berlin, by the way, during this war. He pulls them back, doesn't he? I mean, he pulls them back in a decisive, yeah. they, what, a victory that should have been theirs. And he says, no, we're going to stop this. We're going to fight Denmark. Denmark! Who cares about Denmark? Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, this was known, um, Frederick the Great said, this is an absolute miracle. But he said he must be mad, but it's a miracle. And this is known as the miracle of the House of Brandenburg. And those of you who know World War Two will remember that when Roosevelt died in 1945, Hitler, who had a portrait of Frederick Great on his wall, was hoping that exactly that would happen. There'd be a division. Mm. And he was hoping for the miracle of the House of, of Brandenburg. But anyway, it didn't happen for Hitler. But it did happen for Frederick the Great. And so he offended the, he offended the guards. He offended the church, who he mocked. He offended the, arist the aristocracy. He offended everyone. And he offended and he threatened to arrest and um, try his wife, who he was suspected of plotting against him. Now, immediately, plots were whirling around the Russian court, and two of them began to be centred around Catherine, the wife, the Tsarina, the wife of the emperor. And Peter's court was completely German. Everyone in it was German. He, even brought his, he brought lots of Germans over. 
and they were all absolutely hated. While Catherine was the Russian heroine, and Orlov was the hero of the guards. Very clever bit of manoeuvring by Catherine. And, yes, and of course Orlov, Grigory Orlov, and his brother Alexei, known as Scarface, who was a much more of a ruffian. Um, and much cleverer than Grigori. Grigori wasn't very clever, but he was very good-natured. Mm. But they were the heroes of the guards, the heroes of the Seven Years' War. And so they became the centre. Now, in June 1762, some of the conspirators were suddenly arrested. And Catherine was asleep out at um, Peterhof, at Peter the Great's little villa, Mon Plaisir, my pleasure, out at Peterhof, when... This person was arrested. And the Orloff said, we're either going to have to have the coup mm. now or we're all going to hang. Mm. So at four in the morning, they jump into their carriage and Alexei Orloff goes out to Montplaisir and he, he literally bursts into her bedroom. And he says, the coup's on now. We have to seize power and overthrow the Tsar now or we all die. Catherine jumps out of bed, jumps into the carriage. Jumping onto the back of the carriage is a young sergeant in the guards, Grigory Potemkin, who we will hear of later. 22 years old at 22 this point. 22 years old. Yeah. They turn around and they gallop for St. Petersburg, which is about half an hour or an hour by, by, by carriage. To explain why this is important, this is a gallop for the hearts, minds, boots and sabres of the Russians uh, in St. Petersburg. Yes. So she's doing she's doing her hair as they're going at breakneck speed to get there first. Yeah, with the French hairdresser, Michelle, no less. Well, what happens is, you get exactly right, <laughs> on the way... First of all, they meet Grigory Orlov, her actual lover, and she switches carriages. But they also pick up Michel, the French hairdresser. <laughs> Has he been got out of his bed earlier, or was he yes. always on sort of standby at two in he the was, morning? He was on standby. Um, you, that's what happens when you have imperial clients. And he jumps into the carriage, and as they go along, he does her hair yes. in the carriage on the way to the revolution. So it's all done by the time she arrives. She then arrives, appeals to all the guards' regiments, they all join her, and she takes... St. Petersburg. Well, she does. She does it barrack by barrack. Well, I, I find Correct. this also really, you know, amazing about her. So she starts in the one barrack, and she talks in her fluent Russian, and she's beautiful, and she looks the part now. And she says, "Look, I'm throwing myself on your mercy." And they they respond emotionally to her. They kneel. Someone drags out a crucifix. They all swear loyalty, and she does it from barrack to barrack to barrack. Goes to the church. So suddenly, she has like a little Rolling Stone built up a huge momentum. Yes. In the very city that bears her husband's name. Yes. And meanwhile, her husband is is just sort of is, is asleep or failing to gather anyone and, and completely misplaying the coup. He, there's, a, there's a terrible moment when he doesn't know about it yet. And so he turns up at Mont at Montplaisir and he goes into the he goes into the um, her, bed, her, her house and he goes into her bedroom. And there's, a, there's just a dress on the bed. And he looks around and she's gone and he suddenly realizes, oh, my God. And he says to his people around him, who are all German, he says, to them, oh, my God, I told you what she was capable of. But he tries to gather support. But everywhere he goes, he turns up and he says, it's the emperor open up. And they go, there is no emperor, Peter III. Long live Emperor Catherine it's II. Just amazing. So he begins to sort of, it's a terror, it's a, it's a nightmare. Yeah. And meanwhile, in Petersburg, she holds this amazing parade of all the guards outside the Winter Palace, the Hermitage Museum, which many of you will have been to. And... There's a famous occasion, as she reviews the guards, there's a famous portrait of her, um, it, which hangs at it, St. Um, Peterhof still, of her reviewing these guards dressed in a male uniform. I love this so much because she's wearing the kind of George Washington tricorn hat, the, you know, show, showing her very shapely leg as well. Yes. And doesn't she have the... She has great leg and she yeah. has the hat and she's wearing a military uniform, a yeah. guards man's uniform, again, you know, appealing to the guards. 
and appealing to the memory of Elisaveta, of course, as well. Yeah. As she goes along, she, she reviews Potemkin and she notices Potemkin as a very good looking young man. And when his horse tries to go back to the ranks, it's trained to ride in, um, in squadron. So it refuses to go. And later he said, you know, I owe all my fortune to a disobedient horse. <laughs> I like one thing that she says while she's reviewing, you know, that very famous image of her. She says, you know, for a man's work, you have to wear a man's outfit. Yes. So she, she understands Brilliant. all about even propaganda, you know, in a way yes. that I suppose is quite new where Russian czars before have ruled because it's their divine right to rule. Yeah. She knows you've got to work at it. And also when she, she needs a sword and she doesn't have the sword knot. So she's looking and sees she, and Potemkin spots it. And that's when he rides up and gives her the right sword to wear. And he's already very ambitious and, and a young thruster. So then they march. Then she leads the march on Peter and they march out and they arrest poor Peter III. We're going to take a break very, very shortly. But just before the break, I mean, his response is pathetic and sad to say the least. First of all, he says, look, I'm, yeah, sorry, I've been a real git. Can we share power? <laughs> she yes. doesn't answer. Then he says, do you want to have it all? And then she doesn't answer. How long does he live after that? Yeah, does she uh, have does she have him bumped off, or does does that just happen in her name? Well, then she said, and then he asks just for his violin, his <laughs> mistress, his violin, and his and, 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 and his pet dog, and she gives him those. Hmm. And um, he's arrested. He's put in um, Ropsha, a palace under under guard of the Orlov brothers and young Potemkin, incidentally. And he he survives eight days after the coup. He's thirty four. She's thirty three now as empress. Mm. And he survives. And there's, he, they write letters to us saying they call him the freak. They said the freak. We're getting old, getting drunk with the freak. But basically, they're picking up courage to kill him because this is a one man system. Yeah. This is an autocracy. You can only have one czar. She doesn't give the order, though, does it? It isn't a direct order. She doesn't give the direct order. But everyone knows it has to be done. I suspect including her and the all offs get drunk with the freak, as they call Peter III, and then strangle him and kill him. And the announcement, there's a public, there's a press release, and it says Peter, the, the former emperor, Peter III, has died of piles of hemorrhoids. <laughs> Melancholic hemorrhoids. Melancholic. <laughs> and later, when, um, when, when Catherine the Great invited the philosopher d'Alembert to um, Russia, he, he wrote back, he didn't write back, but he said, no, I can't go. Because I have piles, and yeah, they can be, and they can be <laughs> a fatal disease in Russia. In Russia. And yeah. piles can be a fatal disease in Russia. So he's dead. She's empress. Okay, we're going to take a break there. Uh, not on piles. Brilliant. I mean, that's not where I just suddenly. That was my limit. that. <laughs> <laughs> but we are going to join us after the break, where we start with the reign of Catherine the Great. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Welcome back. So uh, you're joining us after poor old Peter has been strangled, maybe or maybe not on Catherine the Great's word. But then she is now. There she is. She's on her died own. Died of piles. You haven't read the press release. <laughs> no, the press release said he died of piles. <laughs> she, said, she said posterity will never forgive me for having, for having Peter III murdered. Yeah, she was, very, she was very guilty, wasn't she? She thought she'd be remembered as a regicide. But 
Posterity did forgive her. His um, rule was, I suppose, very much fawning over the German court. She had a thing for the French court, didn't she? And very quickly, Russia starts transforming to her tastes, does it not? Well, she loves the French court. She loves the French Enlightenment. So she corresponds with, with Diderot, with Voltaire. And Voltaire even designs an outfit for her, doesn't he? He suggests... Yes, he suggests things for her, and she also corresponds with them all the time. And she understands that in the 18th century, you know, he wrote these letters. They could be read um, and repeated by everybody. You know, they, they were... They, I'm not cracking open a beer, it's Diet Coke. Was that, was, I just was that a tonic? I just, I just got really thirsty, it's just fizzy pop. Is that a, Hol- is that a Holstein beer? No, it's a fizzy pop, is what um, it is. The, the Peter of Holstein. Anyway, she... she, she it's she much louder than I thought. Try it, sorry. She corresponded very much with the Enlightenment, with Voltaire, and he called her Catherine the Great. But she was also, and this was true even more so of her later friend Potemkin, a total Anglomaniac. And she, so she, she had English gardens, English gardens. She bought the pictures from Houghton, didn't she? Uh, she bought the pictures from Houghton to Robert Walpole's huge art collection. She, she bought lots of Joshua Which Reynolds. Which was seen as a sign of British decline and the rise of Russia at the time. Yes. And so she, she was a huge art collector and everything, their gardens were English, their pictures were English, their admirals were English. Um, as you know, um, Admiral Gregg came home. But she was also very much interested in the Enlightenment. She was very relaxed. Um, she had a very relaxed court and she loved having private dinners with her friends like the Orloff brothers, her lovers and her court. Yeah, no, so so okay, there's a civilised aspect that, that is brought in with her. But also, I mean, she reforms things for her people and I think that's often overlooked. Tell us a little bit about the legal reforms that she does. I she mean, tries she, she to does... get the serfs, have better lives. She tries to stop torture. Yes, we haven't described what serfdom is. Serfdom was a, was a system not unlike slavery though without the racial um, aspect of, of, of chattel slavery. But it was, a, it was a system in which the Russian peasantry, who were 90% of the population, could not leave their estates, could be sold with the estates, and could be given to people or sold as they were known as souls, and they could be given to people. And, they, and they, it was a hereditary ownership. It was literally ownership. It was very close to slavery, but they could be freed. But obviously, they were Russian, so there was no racial aspect to it. No. And it was a system to make to control the peasantry who were the sort of who provided the army and provided taxes and food and grain. So Catherine was 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 very sympathetic with the idea of liberating the serfs. But she also understood, and this is something else we haven't talked about, that the Russian Empire was conquered and ruled by a partnership between the Romanov Tsar and the aristocracy who owned the estates. And on their estates, they were they were autocrats, they were mini autocrats. And this system, this partnership had been very successful. And she realized, despite writing uh, a very enlightened instruction in 1767 and holding a huge commission to discuss all these things, she did abolish torture. But she did. But she, in the end, she realized that she couldn't abolish um, serfdom without losing her throne. Because, well, because the nobles wouldn't have it. They would have no one to work their land. And, and remember, she, I remember she's a usurper. She has, yes. no, she has no Russian blood. She's not a Romanov. And she has to be extremely careful not to be murdered like her like her husband. And where it just I mean we'll talk about some of her other achievements in a moment. But where is Paul, the hated son, at all this time? He's growing up at this time. She was perfectly kind to him as a, as a child. But as he grows up, um, he begins to feel that you know he should be ruling. His mother shouldn't be. And what had happened to his father, who died of who died of hemorrhoids, and so. 
as he gets nearer maturity, uh, which which can be anything from 14 to 18, mm. um, he begins to think that he should be ruled. And some people think a woman shouldn't be ruling, especially not a usurper like Catherine. And even her chief minister, Nikita Panin, is sympathetic to Paul having a larger part in the government. And this is a great danger to her. I'm, 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 I'm glad there is sort of love and affection at the beginning. And it is kind of exemplified with, with her use of the smallpox inoculation. Because yes. she, so that, so we did an episode, a previous episode on Lady Mary Wortley Montague, who was yes. uh, in the uh, court, the Ottoman court. And I think, doesn't she predate Catherine, or is it around the same time? I'm trying to think of the time. No, Catherine is later. Catherine is, is, is much later. But it's very much a similar thing. So in, in that yes. case, uh, Lady Mary saw people uh, taking pustules and putting them in cuts on other people. And that was the first inoculation, which she then brings back to Britain. Well, the fascinating thing about these inoculations is that simultaneously all over the world, people were using something mm. like this, um, using sort of cowpox, or the, the giving of, of smallpox in a small, in a dose. small dose yeah. to make people immune to it. They were also doing it in West Africa. Yes. They were doing it in the Ottoman Empire and, 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 were, and were, Montague brought, back, brought it back to England. And Jenna developed it. And then Catherine the Great hired a doctor, Baron Dimsdale, an English doctor. And he came to Russia and he inoculated Catherine herself and, and Paul. And both survived, of course. And Olaf. And she has Olaf. Yeah, everyone she loves. Everyone she loved. Yeah. She, they were inoculated. It worked. And this was a huge... This, so she was a risk taker. She was experimental. She was an innovator. And, um, and it was a much more tolerant court, too. A much more fun court than it had been under all these appalling tyrants. I, I was also really struck by the fact she established Russia's first state-funded school. I mean, that, that is so you know, ahead of its time. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, and the first girls' boarding school. Amazing. Smolny, the Smolny Institute. So she did lots of amazing this things. This presumably is not for the not for the peasants. This is only no. for a small group of no but, of nobles and. But she always said, you know, you philosophs. She said to Voltaire and Diderot and people like that. She said they were constantly telling to reform more to free the serfs. She said, you know, you philosophs don't understand. You know, you write on paper, but I write with human flesh. In yeah. other words, you know, people are people are more complicated. And another thing she said, once somebody said to her, like, but you're an autocrat, you can do whatever you like. She said, I'll tell you what autocracy means. Autocracy means I have an idea, I propose it to my to my council. Um, I consult everybody I can to see if they'll approve of it. And if they approve of it, I do it. And if they don't, I can't. That's an autocrat. <laughs> she also so says somewhere, yeah. doesn't she, that autocracy is more difficult than it looks. Yes, she says it's much more difficult than it looks. <laughs> so, but at the same time as all these admirable, these admirable things, she's living with Orlov, who's her lover. She makes him a prince of the Holy Roman Empire because Russian emperors don't give princedoms at this stage. It's interesting. And she has to arrange it with the emperor, with the Habsburg emperor. Right. And so, so Olaf becomes a prince and he becomes vastly wealthy and she gives him thousands of serfs as a present and estates and he becomes the, the richest man in Russia for a while. And, but at the same time, he's, he's unfaithful to her. And that's a bit galling when you're Empress of Russia. Yeah, really. Olaf, you rat bag. What are you but doing? She, but, but she's very close to the Olaf brothers still. And she's, then in foreign policy, she starts to look at expanding Russia. So first thing she does is to impose on Poland. Remember, it's a sort of satellite state. She imposes as king, Polish kings are elected, 
her ex-lover, Stanislav Poniatowski, the former secretary of the British ambassador. How does this happen, Steve? Because in, in the previous episode, during um, Peter the Great's reign, Poland was a very strong monarchy that was also attacking the Swedes and was really quite independent. How come that she could just impose a, a, a ruler? It wasn't really. What really happened to Poland under Augustus, Augustus the Strong and during that war, um, the Great Northern War, is that Poland... Uh, was occupied by the Swedes, fought all over, and destroyed as a great power. Got it. And it became, it emerged from that as Peter the Great's sort of satellite, but they still elected their kings. It was pretty unrulable. Um, its, mono, its, its nobility was extremely um, independent-minded. It was one of the freest countries in Europe, by the way. And it had, it had an elected um, CM, an assembly. And every noble had a right of veto. Wasn't that one of the yes, problems? Every, yeah, it had the veto, the librarian veto. It had all sorts of fascinating things. Everything had to be unanimous. Every law had to be unanimous. And everyone, so everyone had a rate of veto. It's completely unmanageable. Unmanageable. And kings were elected. So Catherine put her troops around the CM, the, the parliament, and had her, her friend elected king of Poland. And that's, that's the first thing. And that was the first step in the downfall of Poland, which, which happened in her reign. And she would ultimately swat, divvy up Poland, consume it. And it wouldn't emerge again till what, the 20th century? It didn't emerge again till 1918, when it was refounded by the great Marshal Pilsudski. So the thing is, it wasn't good for Poland. Um, then in 1768... The Russo-Turkish War. The Russo-Turkish War. And one of the things that helped launch it was one of the last slave raids by the Tartars. Remember that the Tartars still rule their still own around. kingdom. They still rule their kingdom, the Khanate of the Crimea, mm. um, which is this cavalry-based, now rather declining, very declining kingdom, the Khanate. We talked earlier, Seabag, about the what population of Ukraine was, and you said it was, it was very mixed. Is it a, a largely Tatar population in the Crimea at this point? Or, yes, or? and this is the fascinating thing, that South Ukraine is completely different from North Ukraine. So while North Ukraine is filled with Ukrainians, South Ukraine is, in fact, has no Ukrainians in it, except there's the Zaporozhian host of Cossacks who have their own republic on the island outside Zaporozhia nuclear, um, the nuclear <laughs> works now. But south of that, it's a desert, and it's really filled with Tatars, Mongols, and other peoples, Muslim peoples. And it's basically a Muslim, Turkish and Mongol um, world without, without Slavs, without Ukrainians or Russians, for that matter, which is very important for what happens next. So, yes, and what happens next? I mean, if, if Peter the Great is credited with opening up the Baltic, um, Catherine was very interested in opening up the Black Sea and the surrounding Balkan region. So what, what is this war all about, the Russo-Turkish War of 1768 to 1774? And what happens and, and so how does she fare? 70, yeah, 70, yeah. It's, it's actually 1774. It's, um, it's, it's a war against the Ottoman Empire and against their allies, the, the Tartar Khans. And it's fought at sea in the Mediterranean, partly, by Alexei Orlov, who commands a fleet, and a great um, field marshal, Rumi Antsev, who, who commands on Alexei, land. Alexei Orlov is Scarface. Scarface, yes. Scarface. And basically, the Russians perform extremely well. And this is the moment that everyone realizes that the Ottoman Empire is obsolete. They have these huge armies that are completely disorganized. Is this when it becomes the sick man of Europe? That's a bit this later. Is the beginning. This is the beginning yeah. of the sick man of Europe. And so what happens is, for a while, um, there are amazing run of victories in 1770, where on land and sea, the Battle of Chesme, 
um, where Admiral Orloff and his the, the real commander is Admiral Samuel Gregg of Scotland. Um, I love all these uh, Scots William, admirals that turn yes, up. Yes, yes. So they, she wins a series of amazing victories. And, and, um, and the she, Baltic fleet steams through Gibraltar and comes and surprises yes, everybody yeah. on the coast of Anatolia. Yes. And so there's this amazing, and, and you know, they Incredible bombard story. Jaffa, and they bombard Israel, they bombard Jaffa, and they interfere. Um, they actually back the first sort of Palestinian ruler, um, a, a rebel against the Ottoman Turks, of course, in, in Palestine. But anyway, the real point here is that the war starts very well. Um, she, they occupy large bits of what is now South Ukraine. But the problem is it goes on too long and the Ottomans keep fighting back and they have more manpower. So then Catherine starts to have a massive crisis, the biggest crisis of her career. And what basically happens is the war's going on and on and is now sort of stalemated. Pugachev, there's a huge peasant rebellion on the Volga, led by Emelian Pugachev, a Cossack who claims that he is Peter III, who you remember was strangled um, yeah, uh, 10 years it's, it's earlier. It's not him. We know it's, it's not, not him. him. It's not him. <laughs> it's not him. Lots of people believe it is him mm. or choose to believe it. And it's marching on Moscow. And the third thing that happens, um, things happen in threes, is that Paul is becoming grown up. He's 17 now. Mm. And that he wants to take over and rule the empire. And also Catherine's relationship with Orloff has broken down and she's taken a new lover, Alexander Vasilchikov, who she hates. She, he's, he's, he's a cold fish and he's later called, she and Potemkin later call him Iced Soup is his nickname, <laughs> um, which tells you a lot about him. So she faces this monumental yeah. crisis, 1772, 1773. She's isolated. The men around her all want to, to overthrow her and make, um, and make Paul emperor. That would mean she'd be locked up forever in a single room in a monastery, all murdered. Yeah, I was going to say, if she was lucky, a single room in yeah, a monastery. all murdered. Yeah. Remember what yeah. happened to, to Sophia, Peter the Great's yeah. um, sister. So she also despises Paul and knows that he is very like his father, Peter III. In other words, a disastrous freak. The war's going on and on, and Pugachev is marching on, on. So she's in massive crisis. And it is this point that she starts to think about a very, very masterful and handsome guards officer who she's known all along, who is named Grigory Potemkin, Potemkin, and who she'd resisted turning to because he was so haughty and dominating. And that is where we're going to leave that. Dun, dun, dun. This is a cliffhanger and it's going to be good. Join us for the next episode of Empire when we find out what happens when these two come together, Catherine and Potemkin. Till then, it's goodbye from me, Anita Arnon. And goodbye from me, William Drumple.